Ecclesiastes 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Uh, Two subjects in this passage. The first, uh, verse 1, is the nature and power of wisdom. That is, uh, it's nature and the power to, to, to actually transform um, an individual. And secondly, in verses 2 through 9, um, considers the path of wisdom with regard uh, to our relationship with civil government. Particularly when having to live, in, in this context, particularly when having to live under a, a dictatorial government. That, that, that's the context. So it's best to see verse 1 as an independent proverb that applies to what went before, that is chapter 7, where we heard heard a lot about wisdom, and lending then an example to that which follows um, in verses 2 through 9. So verse 1 really is a transitional verse summarizing what's been said about wisdom in chapter 7 and then preparing us for the way of chapter 8, um, about situations that are beyond our control. That is, particularly living under a dictatorial king. So that, that is what we're looking at this morning. Now remember back in chapter 7, verse 19, if you want to look at that, it says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. In the Old Testament world, uh, the number ten um, is a number that signifies completeness. And here, a, walled, a city is a walled city. The picture is that this walled city is filled with mighty warriors atop of the walls of that city. And he says here that the wise are stronger than that. That's the picture. That is, those who fear God, those who are armed with the word of God, are stronger than, than that visual that's given to us of ten mighty men atop a walled city. Of course, uh, wisdom literature tells us that the beginning, of, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It is the fear of the Lord. That is the one true and only God. Fear of the one true and only God. A lot of people have faith in a God of their own imagination. A God of their own making. 
But having faith in God as who he is and as he has declared himself to be is to, to fear the Lord. And to fear God in the Old Testament simply means to have faith in him, the one true mighty God. So the fundamental presupposition then for true faith and belief and true fear of the Lord is to believe that he is creator of all things and is sovereign over all those things. He is who he is. He provides the facts and he provides specific interpretations of those facts for he is the author of wisdom itself. In Deuteronomy 29.29 we read that the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Of course, that is uh, given to the children of Israel as they are preparing to uh, enter the promised land. So again, the Hebrew thought um, for wisdom is the ability to apply God's truth to, to everyday living. It begins with knowledge. Okay, It begins with truth to know the facts and then the ability to apply the knowledge of those facts to certain situations in life. And also here, wisdom is also defined as a proper interpretation of a thing. A proper interpretation of a thing or an event. So wisdom then includes the ability to give meaning to known facts. In in a nutshell, that's biblical wisdom, amen? That is biblical wisdom. So verse 1 then is a statement is we open up here <clears throat> with the power of wisdom, its influence, the nature and influence of wisdom. Verse 1, notice, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? So again, we have uh, synonymous parallelism here. This is poetry of thought. This is not poetry of, of rhyme and rhythm, like we're, we're most familiar with. But the structure here is of thinking. He makes a statement of comparison. Who can compare with such a man? That is, who can compare with the wise man? Answer, no one. We've already seen that it's not the rich. It's not the powerful. It's not the strong. But it's those who make a right use of those possessions or positions. That trumps everything the having and the doing, or the positions or possessions. It's a man who makes a right use of his knowledge and all that he has. Who is like him? No one. So the mark of a wise man is, in this, in this text, says that he, he knows the right interpretation of a thing. He knows the interpretation. Interpretation means the explanation of something. It's meaning. Now, of course, Daniel all familiar with Daniel, he illustrates this point for us. As he stood in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the king had dreams according to the providence of God, um, by way of the, you know, the sovereignty of God, by way of his providence, that is. And the scripture tells us that not any of his enchanters or musicians could provide an interpretation of the thing. And Daniel 
was the one who was able to assign significance to the facts. So he has this dream. He, he has these, these visions. He calls in the enchanters. He calls in his, his magicians. And they were not able to interpret the thing. Daniel was given the ability. As a matter of fact, Daniel 1 verse 20 tells us that Daniel knew ten times as much as any of the scholars or magicians in Babylon. So he provided an interpretation to the facts. This is what I dreamt. This is what I saw. He provides the meaning. And the, the ultimate end, of course, was Daniel proclaiming to Nebuchadnezzar that you must repent. <laughs> repent. All the eerie visions, bottom line, you need to repent. Look at Proverbs 4, verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Now, in our day, if we think of education, the goal of education is not simply to pile up facts. A lot of people are good at that. Wisdom is more than knowledge. It's more than piled up information. You know, wisdom isn't merely knowing the answers to questions so you look good on Jeopardy. I was washing my cars yesterday, and I had two providential meetings with two passers-by, one of which was incredibly eccentric, very eccentric. He had more information in his head and we basically did a tour of world history in 30 minutes. Was it about 30 minutes to talk to this guy? Longer than that, maybe. Major wars, um, major maritime um, accidents. I mean, you name it. And this guy was filled with knowledge. But I don't know how much wisdom he had. He's walking around with a parrot on his shoulder. And the parrot is literally going all over him, messing all over him. And he's pushing this little cart and stuff. And now, there's knowledge. I don't know how much wisdom he has. <laughs> this reminded me of this. So wisdom isn't a matter of having a high IQ. Wisdom is not a matter of being street smart. Here, when we talk about uh, wisdom, we're talking about godly wisdom. So facts are an important step, amen? It's actually a key. You need facts for the sake of, of proper understanding, but it's having a proper interpretation or the meaning of the facts. Refi- re- reciting facts doesn't mean that you have wisdom. You know, the one verse in Scripture that more Christians have presented to me with a wrong understanding of the text is this one. John fourteen twelve. I don't know how many, over the years, how many Christians have come to me <clears throat> with this verse. Jesus in the upper room talking to his disciples as regards his impending departure. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. They read that And they think that it means that we as Christians are going to do greater miracles than Jesus. 
That's insane. Context. Who's he talking to? The disciples. Did they do any greater works than Jesus ever did? First and foremost. History proves otherwise. No, of course not. Of course not. You know, Jesus could speak to a storm and, and calm the storm. Paul said, I was shipwrecked three times. The great apostle, the greatest apostle, he didn't kill still the storm. The brother was shipwrecked. The, the disciples combined didn't do greater works as far as power goes than Jesus. So it doesn't mean that. And these are people who are all into, you know, they think they're the healer of the day. And we tell them, go to children's hospital. If you have the gift of healing and raise them up. When Jesus says this, he's talking about the church's work in power of the Spirit that will be greater in extension than Jesus' ministry. It was limited in time and in territory. The gospel keys are delivered now to the apostles who will take the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Worldwide gospel proclamation. So it's greater in extension, not in power. The power of the gospel is powerful, but if, if you read this and say, well, this has to do with miracles, you know, I'm going to speak this person to rise up out of their wheelchair, then you're not, you're not thinking correctly. That's not a proper interpretation. Next. The power of wisdom to transform a man's disposition. That is his temperament, his, his character, his outlook. So when a person is able to provide a proper interpretation, that is a, a meaning to the facts, when, when he looks at life and science and law and justice according to God's word, when a person is able to do that, it produces within him joy and peace. Joy and peace. This is what Christians have. And along with it, true humility. True humility. That's what it says in the remainder of verse 1. Notice. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. So godly wisdom, he says, makes a difference in the way people look. Okay, And here, face has to do with outward countenance, which is a reflection of the soul. There's light shining on the inside that illumines on the outside. It shows itself there. And this is a reference to those who have peace and joy. Deep down, they understand things from the perspective of God's sovereignty and God's holy word. So God's sovereignty and his holy word equals hope and satisfaction. And this is what we're always, we're all growing in this, amen? Well, you don't know I'm a nervous wreck. Yeah, but deep down, the load's been lifted because you know the truth, amen? A huge load is lifted. We have peace. The other guy I spoke with yesterday, wow, what a resume, man. This is a different guy. He, he worked in military intelligence and I mean, you name it. How long did I speak with him? Another 45 minutes. It was great. 
and he lost his wife. In the last four years, he lost a wife, his father, and his son, all within 18 months. So usually people get nervous if a guy, a stranger, says, I lost my wife, and not me. I get in around there and says, how long ago did you lose your wife? And, you know, and how do you feel about that today? I mean, how are you dealing with that? So he went on to tell me and give me his life story. And it turned out that during the, during the Six-Day War in the 60s in Israel, he was there and he was overseeing, he was investigating some crime there militarily and um, met his wife there, who's Israeli, married her, and he converted to Judaism. So this guy, as we get talking, he's talking about people knocking on his door, Jehovah's Witnesses. He goes, I can't believe people who come and want to cram religion down your throat. Boom, open door for the gospel. So he's in my yard. (laughs) And, And my point is, is that he did not have peace because there's no hope in Judaism. If you stop there, there's no hope. So I mentioned Messiah. He goes, I don't think the Messiah has come. I says, you don't believe Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah? He goes, he couldn't have been or the Holocaust never would have happened. I, I have no idea what those two have to do with anything. But it, it, just, it just shows you that, you know, that load hasn't been lifted from him. He has no hope because he doesn't have godly wisdom. We don't bear that load. That load has been lifted and it's replaced with joy and peace as we have true biblical wisdom, the unfolding wisdom of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The fool, on the other hand, stumbles around in the dark like a blind man, groping, seeking, never able to find. And that's because he's self-centered instead of God-centered. Not God-centered. The guy yesterday at least admitted he was a sinner. So I had to preach the gospel from the Old Testament, not the New Testament. I said, you're an Adam. He goes, we're all born in the image of God. I go, that's right. And you're also share the image of Adam. You're in the first Adam. If you stand in the first Adam before God, you're going to be judged in Adam. So you need a second Adam, that whole deal. But he, he, he left still with that weight. Hopefully his thinking will be challenged by the Spirit of God. But fools stumble through life in the dark. Godly wisdom provides light, joy, peace, and a burden um, lifted. And godly wisdom here also brings about in a man true humility. It doesn't mean he walks around, you know, like a meek little guy with his hands folded. It's not that. It's not being wimpy or like, oh, I don't know. I'm just humble. It's that the hardness of his face is changed. Okay, so hardness of face is, is, means a fierce face or fierceness. And the idea has to do with impudence. It has to do with human pride. That's what this has to do with. So a man's hardness, the sternness of his face to keep people at bay or the, the lifted up chin looking down his nose at everyone is changed. Godly wisdom changes a man's disposition, his countenance. True wisdom, in other words, has a humbling effect. It teaches man that in himself he is nothing. And everything we do have, knowledge, right, intellect, let alone wisdom itself, all comes from God. 
That's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Notice, wisdom teaches how difficult it is to come to a proper interpretation of a thing. That's why we're called to do what with the Scripture day and night? Meditate day and night. That's a demanding task. That's what's known as mental sweat. In the, in the end, as much knowledge or proper interpretation of a thing that you gain, you realize it's a gift. So all you can do is praise God for it. You, you, you know, we, 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 wisdom understands that um, there's a multitude of counsel. There's wisdom in a multitude of counsel, right? So we think about this. We know that we depend on the knowledge and wisdom given to God's people who've gone before us like our heroes of the faith, upon whose shoulders we stand. So we we depend on that. That's one of God's ways for passing on godly wisdom. That's why we read theologians. That's why I quote theologians. God has used them to help teach us. So here then, wisdom, he says, brings humility. You know, in in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about knowledge. He says, knowledge what? Puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. But the context there is important because knowledge is important. Paul was dealing with folks who were enamored with Greek philosophy and the wisdom of men. That is man-centered wisdom. So he opens 1 Corinthians by saying, the only way to become truly wise is to become a fool in the eyes of the world. That's the first chapter. Greeks would gather facts, all kinds of facts. They would talk about all those facts, but they never had the real understanding of those facts. It leads to mysticism and every other worldview under the sun. So without a proper presupposition, that is the one true God's rule and reign of all and over all, knowledge in and of itself leads to pride. That kind of knowledge puffs up. You know, in our own lives, not only can Christians memorize numerous scriptures, and I've met these Christians, they, they're always citing scripture, and, and half of which they do not know the meaning of. Right? Great to memorize scripture. Well, you need to study to understand the meaning of the text. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Another thing. We can know the scriptures, we can know the meaning of the scriptures, and still be prideful. Like doctors, say the doctrines of grace. Okay? Most of you probably came up in Arminian type of churches. You didn't understand the doctrines of grace. When you came to understand the doctrines of grace, it's like you were born again again. Right? And you read scripture and you're like, wow, how did I not see this before? What well, was God's grace that enabled you to see that in a particular time? So you know, for the sake, for the lack of a better term, we call Calvinism. When we talk about Calvinism, we're not talking about following a man. We're talking about understanding the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty above all and over all. So 
It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms, if you will, to be a proud Calvinist. Right? Because if you come to understand the sovereignty of God through the reading of the Scripture, by the Spirit of God, He's opening your eyes to a whole new understanding of Himself and how He works. That should humble you. And I told you about a group of young men we had in this church. Six years ago, thank God, they're gone. Who became boastful in their knowledge. So they went to another church midweek that this church in town had classes. They signed up for, and it's a very large church, so they wouldn't know if these people belong to that church or not. They sign up, take the class, and start debating and combating with the instructor in their pride. So they investigated, where are you from? And they said, Pacific Oak Church. I was embarrassed. We were embarrassed. Out of our minds. True wisdom is not meek and standing on the truth, but true wisdom has a humbling effect. Amen? And as we said last time, knowing the limits of wisdom is part of having wisdom. Okay, notice next. In context now to the path of wisdom comes the, the interpretation of a situation given to us from the preacher here, koalath, which is the Hebrew for the preacher, in verses 2 through 9. And that is how to live life under those who have absolute authority. In this context, a dictatorial king. So he's referring here to to a civil magistrate. And at this time, the council is how to live in accordance to the civil state who sits in supreme authority. Verse 1, or verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? So... There's a unanimous agreement here among, among commentators that kings are to be greatly respected. We should know this. The question is, what type of ki- a king are we to submit to? Certainly a good king, amen? Cert- most certainly a godly king. But what about a bad king? What about an ungodly civil government? And the council here is, is most certainly how we are to relate to all kinds of kings in all kinds of circumstances. In verse 3 here, if you notice, do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. It's probably, evil is probably better translated bad. That's how the NIV translates it, a, a bad thing. And the thought here is to be wise and thoughtful with dealing with authorities that are above you and be careful not to be, caught, to, to be involved in some campaign against a standing king. You know, if you're trying to bring down the one in authority, because such a cause in attempting to bring him down, here's the wisdom, will bring you down. So in other words, don't be stupid. It's not wise to do that. Don't make your stand in some cause that, yeah, it's probably not the best for our government. It's probably not best for our culture. Uh, But the wisdom here is the king is going to do as he pleases. So be very wise 
in what stands you make. Because remember here, he says, kings can kill you. Right? Kings can kill you. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 2. The terror of a king. I don't know if I have it up there or not. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. And, of course, we can carry that principle over to uh, uh, our, our employer. Um, Sidney Gradanis makes a, a number of examples in his commentary. He talks about a baseball coach who yells in the face of the umpire, and he's kicked out of the game. Just not wise. A traveler gives the customs agent at the border a hard time, and before you know it, um, they're caught up for three hours as they ransack their car and go through their luggage. That was really stupid. You get pulled over for speeding. You start arguing with and, and um, threatening the officer, and you find yourself in jail instead of just having a ticket. That's just not wise. So he says, be prudent, be thoughtful, and strategic. Don't be foolish. Think before you act. Think before you make your stand. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. Now, I think we all know some cultures, especially if you've traveled around the world, you know that some cultures throughout the world are indeed known for their submission to authority, even if that authority is not the best, even if that authority is corrupt. Their natural reaction is to do that which they are told to do. American culture, on the other hand, is not known for its submission to authority, say the least. Our country was actually established by revolting against tyrannical authority. And as a result, we're conditioned to see, probably too soon, um, uh, certain abuses of authority. Amen? Agree, Agree with that? Okay, however resistance to English tyranny at that time was not mob rule. It was not mob rule, and that's the difference. So that's known as the doctrine of the law of interposition, where you have civil magistrates, people who are um, in places of authority, who stand between the people and a tyrant. So that's what we experienced under a lawful colonial government. As compared to the French Revolution, which was mob rule, an eventful bloodbath. That's the difference. John Kelvin, a Frenchman, said this, that he would rather live under a tyrant than under a mob. Anarchy? You do not want to live in the midst of anarchy. It's the worst state man could possibly be in. The worst. You saw Ferguson a couple summers ago. You want to live in the middle of that? course not. Think about the sin of Adam and Eve. It was rejection of authority. And all positions of authority are delegated by God, the one who's an absolute authority. Notice verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? So life is full of trouble, that is to say, in light of authority or positions of authority. We know that men in positions of authority can be bent on evil. 
and self-indulgence. But if we look at the lives of, uh, say, a Daniel or the life of Joseph, they, they exemplified this kind of wisdom um, under the presence of great authority. Monarchies. They showed incredible wisdom. They were pagan rulers to whom they submitted until they were commanded to do what God forbids. And that's the difference. If we have time, we'll look at that. So they're exemplary models of of how to live like this, Joseph and Daniel. So at the same time, as we live under civil magistrates, we have to understand and realize that God's providence is at work. So as we live under a certain particular kind of government in a particular kind of time, we have to discern which times we live in because the pendulum swings both ways, does it not? Times of prosperity in government and times that are other than that. So we have to discern the times. Historically, we see it. Sometimes the pendulum swings to adversity. Bad leadership. Other times, prosperity and good leadership. You know, Jeremiah preached a very unpopular message in his day. He said this, God says, thus saith the Lord, Israel is about to be judged. I'm sending Babylon. So he goes out and he faithfully preaches that. Israel responded, oh no, we will make our stand against them. We're going to be patriotic. We're going to be patriots, man. And we're going to stand for Israel. We're going to stand for our nation. We're going to resist. You know what Jeremiah said? Uh Uh-uh. Surrender. You're under God's judgment. And that resistance resulted in with gory consequence. The siege was so bad, what'd they end up doing? Cannibalizing. Eating one another. That's how bad it was. They resisted the voice of the Lord. Verse 6 says, if you don't recognize the time, you bring misery upon yourself. So the heart and soul of sin, of course, is the rejection of God. Verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. To his hurt, as John Gill points out, if this refers to the hurt of others, then obviously um, he writes, and I quote, those that are ruled when it should be for their good, the protection of their persons and properties, but instead they lay heavy burdens upon them, take away their property and injure and insult their persons. If the hurt is to the hurt of the king, then Gil goes on and he uses Rehoboam as an example. Because Rehoboam, by his oppressive government, lost 10 tribes out of 12. He goes on to say, some have lost their whole kingdoms and come to an untimely end, as well as ruined their immortal souls. End quote. In the New Testament, Paul counsels submission and obedience to the powers that be. And who at that time were the powers that be? Rome. Rome. Rome was that power. If you remember, Rome was was pictured by Daniel as a beast with iron teeth that devours everything and everyone below it. Rome 
they said, is divine. Rome is divine. Rome does as Rome pleases into the church in Rome. What does Paul write? Romans 13. Let every person, church, be subject to governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for you, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the challenge for God's people is to live under poor government. It's not a challenge to live under good government. The challenge is to live under poor government, bad government. Look at 1 Peter 2. Be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be emperor or supreme, or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the what? The will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. I do not like our president's policies or worldview, but I do like our president as a man. If that brother walked into this room, I'd pop tall and I would salute. He did a Super Bowl interview with somebody. Just his personality, I love. I think he's the coolest president we've had. He's just smooth, he's cool. I don't agree with his policies and his worldview, but as a man, I like him, and I will respect him because I respect the office as God tells me to respect it. Amen? That's what we're called to do. So we live under a constitutional republic, not a monarchy, as these people did. So we have many advantages, advantages of which the writer of Ecclesiastes could not even have imagined, or Paul for that matter. So we're still under men who write, who interpret, and who apply and administer laws, which we're called to obey. Because they exercise their authority as delegated by God. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. You know, Christians are called to govern their own lives first. Amen? Govern your life. Attend to your business first. That's overall as we read the scriptures. So, we're called to have our own lives in order, our own homes in order, our churches are to be in order. And the principle is here in this proverb, twenty-two twenty-nine: do this and you'll rise before kings. Kings will seek you out. That's the principle. That's not an ultimate promise. (laughs) Amen? I see see something different in you. Maybe your boss or somebody. I see something different in you. Why are you the only one who doesn't moan when you have to work overtime? Or whatever. You know, I've met Christians whose lives are a mess. I mean, they, they have no idea how to govern their own lives. You walk in their house and you've got to wade through two feet of garbage. They're sloppy. 
And they resist civil government. They sport their silly hats with, in their silly T-shirts and their silly bumper stickers with, with these stupid phrases that are anti-government. And they're always raising their fist at the government. And, you know, your, your, your government's out of control when their lives are out of control. When you do that as a Christian, you bring reproach upon the, God, the name of the God you confess. Amen? May we not be like that. Brings reproach. Don't wear those stupid hats. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not join with those who do otherwise. For disaster from them will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. <laughs> so the fundamental truth of our text today is verse 2. I say... Keep the king's command. Command means keep the king's mouth. Keep the law that comes out of his mouth. Obey the king because of God's oath to him. So our duty to obey is based on submission to God who delegates this authority. See it in the New Testament too. We read it right there in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities for there's no authority except from God. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit, also translated as wind, that word, ruhak, or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So he gives four examples of powerlessness to control present events here. The wind, if you've ever experienced a tornado or a hurricane, you are helpless. Helpless. I grew up in an area where there's tornadoes. When you hear that siren, you run to the basement. And when you're a kid, you tremble. (laughs) You're just so afraid because you're powerless. You have no power to do anything. You have no power, notice, over the day of death. He says there's there's no discharge. Once the war begins, there's no discharge from the army once you're in the battle. Also, the wicked who seem to flourish, eventually the wicked will be met with judgment. So you don't need to trip out now. Even wicked rulers who seem powerful cannot be delivered by their own wickedness. That's what he's saying. They will not be delivered by their temporary apparent sovereignty because they're going to stand before the true sovereign one one day. The king of kings and the lord of lords. So don't fight the king because he will stand before the greater king. God judges tyranny. Okay? So finally, to answer the whatabouts. Well, what about if the government tells us to do this? Or what if about the government def- to tells us we can't do that and God tells us we should? There are limits to civil authority, amen? Yes. And we see many examples through Scripture, so I thought it would be best just to use examples of Scripture. Anytime man-made laws are enacted which contradict God's law and command you to do otherwise... It's our Christian duty to oppose it, to disobey man rather than God. When Pharaoh, for instance, ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn baby boys, what did they do? They refused to do it. Daniel, chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he issued an edict that all his subjects must fall down and worship the golden image 
course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do so. They entered the fiery furnace as a judgment, and there was God to, to deliver them from that. They refused to obey. King Darius made a decree for 30 days. Nobody was to pray to any god or man except him. Daniel refused to obey, thrown in the lion's den. When the Sanhedrin banned preaching in the name of Jesus, the apostles, what? Refused to obey. And they said that we must obey God rather than man. So in each of these cases, um, their defiance showed allegiance to the highest authority. That is God. In Calvin's words, quote, Obedience to man must not become disobedience to God. So as God's people, very simple, here's the wisdom, we're called to govern our own lives, our own homes, our own churches. We are salt, we are light, we're of another kingdom, and that kingdom is continuing to grow until it will one day be fully consummated when Jesus Christ comes again. When speaking to Jesus, he never supported or approved the zealots of his day. He never approved of the zealots. He fought with the sword of his mouth. Amen? Jesus fought with the sword of his mouth. Rome would fall. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that Israel was currently under God's judgment. And he looked at the temple. And he said, most assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. And that temple would never be erected again because he is the true temple who stands forever. Forever. So for us, it's not revolution. It's regeneration. For us, it's not insurrection. It's sanctification. Because we live and are part of another kingdom. And for this time, in this moment, however long we may live, We live under the authority of others, and those who are in authority are in authority because God has delegated that to them. So we need wisdom, amen? Hopefully this helps.